Hello, and thank you for listening to the Mathematics Teacher Educator Journal podcast. The Mathematics Teacher Educator Journal is co-sponsored by the Association of Mathematics Teacher Educators and the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics. My name is Eva Thanheiser, and today I'm talking with Amanda Sugimoto from Portland State University. We will be discussing the article Language Demand Tool, a tuning perspective teacher's vision to the role of language in mathematics education which was published in the June 2022 issue of the Mathematics Teacher Education Teacher Educator Journal. We will begin by summarizing the main points of the article and discuss in more depth the lessons she shared in the article, her successes and challenges, and how these lessons relate to her other work. Amanda, can you briefly introduce yourself? Absolutely. I'm Amanda Sugimoto. I'm a associate professor at Portland State University in the College of Education, and I work primarily in elementary mathematics education and working with multilingual learners. Thank you. So let's jump into the article. Can you give us a brief summary of the article, including the results? Absolutely. So this article focuses on a tool that I've been using in my elementary mathematics methods courses over the past six years. Uh, the tool is called the Language Demands Tool. And it really, the whole goal of using the tool is having conversations with teacher candidates around the role of language in mathematics education. As I found working in classrooms as an elementary teacher and working with teachers and pre-service teachers, that sometimes there's this idea that math is somehow language-free. And that's also supported by research. So I modified a tool from Julia Guerre and George Bunch called the Language Demands Tool as an observation tool that teacher candidates could use in their field placements where they observe a, a math lesson. And they just make notes about the language demands they see present, including writing, reading, representing, speaking, and listening. And so then they bring those notes back. And then we use that as a what I call a pedagogical catalyst in the article for thinking more deeply and discussing more about the role of language. Some of the findings that I found over the six years using this tool is that there were patterns that came up across the, I think six times I've used this tool and now more since publishing the article. The first is around the different ways language modalities are often observed in elementary math lessons. So teacher candidates have this time in class where we unpack what they observed and we look for patterns across as a way to continue the conversation and work. And one thing that often comes up in these courses is that, you know, they notice a lot more of the lit of the oral modalities, so speaking and uh, listening, rather than the literacy modalities, reading and writing. So that's kind of an opportunity for us to discuss more how they might find balance in their own lessons and lesson planning. Another was around representing and representing in math. And the fact that that was one, that was the single modality that was noticed the least by teacher candidates in the lesson. And in the article, I talk a little bit about more why that might happen, but that's an opportunity for us to really to dig into mathematical representation, what it is, how it interacts with the other modalities, and just really make sense of that as a, as a group. Hang on, let me ask quickly, when you say they noticed less for the two points that you mentioned, does that mean they're not seeing it, but it's present? Or does it mean it's not present? Yeah, that's a good clarification. So I, this 
assignment is given almost at the very beginning of our time working together. So really, I can't, the, my goal isn't here to make sense of whether they're actually noticing what's happening in the classroom or not. It's really to see what they are paying attention to. So it could absolutely be happening and it's not something that they see. And in fact, with the representation pattern, oftentimes we'll I'll do kind of a mini lesson of sorts of what is mathematical representation. We might take an example from what someone brought in and I will point out the representation together and then they'll go back into partner work and look at their observation and mm -hmm. particularly what they recorded and then find instances of mathematical representation. So it's kind of an iterative process of making yeah. sense of it. So you said you mentioned two things. What was the third? Oh, yes. Yeah. So the third was really around some of the supports that you might see in elementary classrooms and oftentimes these supports come from language acquisition trainings and research of what can really help students so for example introducing vocabulary at the beginning of a lesson that's going to be needed or providing sentence frames for students to use as they're engaging in in mathematical discourse or mathematical writing and I'm, my intention is not to say that these aren't useful tools. I think they are useful tools, but with the teacher candidates, we really start to make sense of when would we introduce this? Do we always have to forefront the vocabulary? Or we, could we do it later on as students are working and an idea comes up and then maybe that's when we introduce the uh, vocabulary or name a concept that they're highlighting that they just don't have the formal vocabulary for. So it's really thinking about when and how to use instructional strategies that they're naturally seeing in their classrooms already. Okay, and I pulled up the article while I was talking to you, and this tool is really kind of a paper chart that you fill in, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For the, so the listeners can kind of envision. There's like mm -hmm. different categories, like what you mentioned before, and then students just take notes on that tool. Exactly. Okay, so let's jump into like a more detailed discussion. So who do you think should read this article? So I really wrote it with the idea of talking to other mathematics teacher educators. I've had similar discussions actually with practicing teachers as well. And we've done not exactly the tool, but versions of it with say video analysis as a way to start looking, attending to language and mathematics. So that's been really helpful. So I think it, the tool is just a framework, a way of thinking about language and mathematics. So anyone who's interested either in supporting teachers and thinking about that teacher candidates or maybe for their own practice. Yeah. And the beauty of this tool is that it's so simple. I feel like the MTE does a nice job of bringing out all kinds of different tools. And this one, like there's not a ton of training you need to do, right? To be able mm -hmm. to use the tool. And so, I have to give credit to Julia Gede and George Bunch for their chapter and what's language got to do with it because I, they lay it out so wonderfully. And we actually read that chapter as part of rolling out the tool. So it's a really nice con combination. That's nice. So let's get back to the problem. I think in MTE, every article is supposed to address some problem of practice. So what is the problem of practice that your article addresses? For me, it's this idea of mathematics somehow being language free or universal. So sometimes you'll hear people say, well, you know, it's numbers and equations and it doesn't matter what language I speak at home. I can understand that once I see it up on the board or in the classroom. But with, in particular, the mathematical practices and the Common Core State Standards and other ways that we're thinking about mathematics instruction, it is a, it's a language-intensive content area. And so the problem is really kind of forefronting that as a way to 
make sense of, well, what do I do with that now as a teacher? How can I better support my students? Yeah. And I love that you are, or your data has separated out the focus on speaking and listening versus on reading and writing and representing, which really is all part of language and communicating, right? But we usually focus so much on the spoken and the heard parts. Okay, so let me see if I can summarize what you said. The the problem that you address is that math is actually language heavy, and we need to understand where language shows up and how to support students across the different ways language shows up. Mm-hmm. Okay, so how does your article build on existing work in the field? You already mentioned that you're, you build on a specific chapter. Can you broaden a little bit on what else you have been building on? Absolutely. Viega and Lucas have been doing work in the field around linguistically responsive education and re- re- linguistically responsive teacher education. And they really do a a clear job of outlining dispositions, knowledge bases, and practices that any teacher, regardless of content area, can develop to be more linguistically responsive. So whether or not you have multilingual, bilingual students in your classroom, these are things that you can do to be more linguistically responsive on a day-to-day basis. So part of that framework is this idea of attending to the different language demands, as they frame it, in each content area and really being aware of that. So that led me to start to think about, well, what are the language demands in mathematics, which led me to the Gede and Bunch work. Judith Moscovich's work as well around academic literacy in mathematics has been really influential to me because she looks at really clearly from the student perspective, what do they need linguistically? What are they engaging in linguistically in mathematics to be academically proficient? And what do teachers need to be attending to around the strands of mathematical proficiency, mathematical practices, and really discourse practices that we're asking our students from a really early age. You know, anytime we ask a student to explain their thinking, that's complex, right? And we need to be able to support that and and help them figure out what do you mean when you ask me to explain my thinking exactly? What does that look like in this space? Yeah, I did it in my head. Right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So let's jump a little bit more into this innovation that you created. So it says on the top learning target and task summary, and then language supports observed. And then you have representing, reading, writing, listening, and speaking. Those are your categories that you fill in. And it's organized like in a specific way, or does it matter? The tool has taken multiple iterations over the years. So through refining, this seems to be user-friendly for teacher candidates who are just starting uh, methods courses over, is what I've found. So on the one that I see in the article, the representing is on top. I was kind of curious, is that because you found that that's the least observed thing? Is that why you ended up putting that on top? Yeah, it used to be on the bottom. And that was one that I'm not sure. I haven't looked at whether or not more candidates now are putting in representing examples to when it used to be at the bottom. But I will say having it right there at the top in class when we do the conversations after do their observations, that kind of is a nice way to ping that conversation to start that conversation around representing because candidates will say often say oh I have this big box at the top and I didn't put much in there I didn't know what to do for representing and then that's my cue to be like oh let's make sense of that what do let's talk about that more so you teach methods which means your students are in classrooms while you're teaching them right 
Yes. So you give them this at the very beginning of your, or at, towards the beginning of the message class, you send them out and just have them observe a class, fill it in and come back. I have them read the, again, well, no, excuse me. I do a brief kind of preview of the Gia and Bunch framework and with some of the examples they provide in their chapter. And then I say, now that you have some idea, I'm going to have you go out into the field over the next week or two weeks, depending on when we meet again and filled out this out and come back and we're going to continue more. So can you share like a story or two with how people filled that out and what you did with that? So I have the privilege of working with lots of different teacher candidates. Some of our candidates, and we do a cohort model, some of our candidates are, some of our cohorts are primary monolingual English speakers, or at least they're the majority in the cohort. And then I, we also, I also get to work with a cohort of bilingual uh, teacher candidates who are going to be bilingual educators who are fabulous. And so I think think that one story that comes to mind was around some bilingual candidates who have filled this out. And they, when we had the original conversation, there were moments of, oh yeah, I do remember, you know, learning mathematics. And I, and I always appreciated that, you know, coming from another country of another language, the, the numbers were the same. And I could kind of make sense of what was happening by looking at the board as I was still um, developing my English. And then they would go do the observation and come back and they would come back and say, it's way more complex than I realized. I, I always thought that there was this entryway, that universality of mathematics language. And now that I really have to sit down and put on my teacher observation hat, I realize how much as a teacher we need to attend to in math, in math learning. And that's one instance that really just always stands out to me. Um, I think in that, you know, I, of course, you hear that from the monolingual um, English speaking candidates as well. You would hear it across all groups. But I think that that really clear connection to their own mathematical learning. And then now as a teacher, what does that mean? And what am I noticing now? I, it just, I, it's a really great moment. Yeah, that sounds awesome. So let's get to the questions. Like every MTE paper is supposed to have kind of some research and I, I'm putting this in quotation marks on the audio research questions, right? Or something that we're examining. How does this, does the innovation work or how does it work? So what questions did you examine and how did you show effectiveness? So when I first started this study, I was really interested in examining what were the language demands that uh, teacher candidates observed and really starting to make sense of what were they were attending to in the classrooms. As I kept going with the work though, the part that really interested me was how we could use those observations because every group is different. That's what I found is that every time I did this, there would be different things that we would need to work on afterward in class together. And then that's the piece that I really wanted to focus on, particularly with this article is how could you use this tool or a tool like this as a pedagogical catalyst to be responsive to what candidates are bringing back into the, to the classroom. And really this idea of you know, making sense of practice that they're going to be seeing day to day in their field placement, and then thinking about, well, really unpacking that. What does that mean? And then how can I think about how I want to plan my own lessons once I start being lead teacher? So you have used the term pedagogical catalyst a few times. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, for me, it's the idea that using something, in this case, an observation moment, an observation assignment, as this opportunity to come back together in class 
and make sense of whatever the concept is that we're studying, in this case, language and mathematics, and how to support students' um, linguistic development in mathematics. So I think that catalyst piece is I had previously tried to do have these conversations without doing an observation and field placement. And we would have conversations and we could kind of talk through what are the language demands and we could watch a video and discuss that. But it wasn't until we started actually applying it to what they were doing out in their student teaching field placements that it really became this deep conversation about, well, what does work for students? You know, what could I, how could we potentially open more opportunities and lessons? Because they were so invested with these students in this classroom that they really wanted to think about this idea of like, where are the opportunities present and what can I add in as I teach? Yeah, what's also really powerful as I'm talking to you and thinking about it is that they all go out into different classrooms and they come back, but that tool works so that you can have a conversation, even though they all had different observations. Absolutely. It also leads to really nice conversations across K-5. So kindergarten, you know, teacher candidates will say, well, this is what I saw kindergartners doing. Fifth grade teacher candidates will say, this is what I saw. And we can find connections across. And that kind of leads us to this conversation around, well, how do we develop students' language across the K-5 grade span? Because um, we're all, that's what they're licensed as. K-5 teachers. That's really cool. All right. So let's summarize together. What would you say is the new contribution that your paper makes to the field? My goal in this was to take some of, build off some of the amazing work that's already been done around language demands, language modalities, and mathematics education, and really think about how to make this information usable for practitioners or teacher candidates, you know, kind of in that space of learning to be practitioners. So I think that for me is the contribution is how to bridge that theory to practice divide with this research. So I'm assuming that people are reading this paper and are listening to the podcast and they want to use this tool. What piece of advice would you give them? That's tricky. I think one for me, it was particularly with the representation category. In the beginning, I was a little uncertain about why there was just so few instances of representation. And it might be another category in other people's contexts. But seeing that as an opportunity for further discussion and development with teacher candidates, it's not a teaching tool in itself. It really is a what do we do after we do the observation moment that makes it, I think, more powerful. Yeah. As I'm thinking about it, it's really part of the noticing work too, right? It focuses mm -hmm. on what students are noticing mm -hmm. so that they can bring that back. Absolutely. The discussion. All right. Well, is there anything else you would like to add? I can't think of anything. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. And for further information on this topic, you can find the article on the Mathematics Teacher Educator website. This has been your host, Ava Thenheiser. Thank you and goodbye.